The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to a very refreshing hour of business talk. This is Game Changing HR Leaders, presented by SAP and America's SAP Users Group. The best-run businesses run SAP. You'll hear from the innovators who know how to use game-changing technologies and business strategies to transform industries. And importantly, they will discuss how these technologies and strategies can shake up the status quo in your company's future and help your organization move in exciting new directions. Now, here's your host and moderator, Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome, welcome, welcome. If you want to run with the Game Changers, you're in the right place, and you're listening to one of our newest series, Game Changing HR Leaders. What company, what organization around the world wouldn't want to know what we're talking about? So welcome. Our topic today is from workers as assets to workers as investments. Let me get started. What's the buzz on the street or in the HR space? The buzz is future-proofing. Let me explain. This is a wake-up call to HR. The industrial age, remember that? It demanded workforce consistency and compliancy. News blast, it's long gone. What does this mean for all of you? It means it's time to abandon the unspoken notion that your workers are just expendable resources. I know, I know, numbers, get them in, get them out, whatever you don't need them, gone. Instead, it's time to shift to the concept of workers as an investment in your company's future. Think about it. That's a bigger picture. It's not just what are they doing for us today. It's how can they help the company grow into the future. So whether your organization, let's talk about your company. Are you in a growth mode? Are you in stabilization? Are you in a reduction mode? Some companies are. Your business will thrive only through the continual nurturing of your most valuable asset. I know you've heard it a million times, but we're going to say it again. People. People are your most valuable asset. We have a panel of three experts. They've all appeared on various of our Game Changers radio shows before. They're all interesting and smart and savvy and up to speed on this topic. So, let me get started. First up, I'm delighted to welcome back Tom Kalopoulos, the chairman of the 25-year-old, I think it's probably 26 years old by now, Boston-based think tank Delphi Group. He's also a columnist for Inc.com. He's also an adjunct professor at the Boston University <laughs> Graduate School of Management, and I have a degree from BU. And Tom has sent us an interesting quote from Abraham Lincoln, 16th president of the U.S. You know that. Here's the quote. The best thing about the future is that it comes one day at a time. And I think we can all say a collective sigh. Thank goodness. Tom, how are you? Welcome back. I am wonderful. Thank you so much for having me back. Oh, we're delighted. It's always a pleasure. You did three shows with me on, I think, Coffee Break a couple of months ago, right? We were talking about work. I remember it well. It was, it was a joy. Well, we're joyful to have you back. So tell me, Abraham Lincoln, would he be surprised to have his future quote here on an internet radio show? What do you think, Tom? I, well, I think you'd be surprised by a lot of things in, in the world today, but this is the thing about the future. It, it creeps up on us. It, it doesn't come at us all at once. When we look backwards, we have these 
enormous breakpoints, these watersheds, these historical moments that we see as, as pivots where the whole world turns. But when you're in the midst of that pivot, it doesn't feel like the whole world is turning. It just feels like a mess. It feels like mayhem. It feels like chaos. And I think we're at one of those points right now. It's, it's not clear exactly how we can best manage our human resources. They have much more latitude and license and influence than they've ever had before. Generationally, they're much more diverse than anything we've ever seen. And I think the challenges there, Bonnie, are are really creating a a lot of uncertainty uh, in terms of old management practices. And, And one of my favorite ways to look at the workforce of tomorrow and the workforce of today is a quote by, uh, by Peter Drucker that he shared with me many years ago. He said, you, you don't manage knowledge workers, you challenge them. And I think that the, the, the key is how do we find ways to challenge our workforce in such a way that they can find meaning and purpose in, in their work and do so uh, in, a, in a manner that uh, creates both profits and productivity as, as well as creating this, this deep sense of meaning and, and purpose. And that's, that's part of what I see, Bonnie, is that the, the great change mm-hmm. is this move towards meaning and purpose. And that's why I love the, the Lincoln quote. I mean, that was certainly a time when meaning and purpose was essential to the country as a whole. And I think, once again, we're starting to find uh, that core in, in, the, in the workforce. So it's a neat thing. I, I, I think it's, it's an optimistic thing, but it, it does wreak a bit of havoc. It does, all of the above. And what's interesting is that you talk about HR needs to challenge the knowledge workers, but the question is, does HR get this yet? Do we challenge HR enough in a direct way, and that's part of what we'll be talking about, so that they do see workers as investments and they do see the need to challenge rather than just push timesheets around? Just quickly, Tom, what do you think? Is HR, are they in on this, or, or do we have to break the news to them? Yeah, it's a good question. I, you know, I think I think some folks are definitely in on it. I, I, we talked to when I wrote my last book, The Gen Z Effect, my co-author, and I talked to Rob Webb, who is the chief of human resources, resources over at, at Hyatt, and, and they definitely get it. And and they're doing some neat stuff with the design school, which we'll talk about later. Um, some do, and those that do are having a deep impact. But I think by and large, we're stuck in some old habits, some old processes, some old systems, and as a result, it's it's tough to change. So by and large, I think it's a wake up call for HR. But the good news is that long term HR plays a much more vital role in the organization than they ever have before. I think. And that may be a shock to them, and we'll find out more about that. Thank you, Tom, and welcome back. And this is so exciting. You know, this is Sherry Ann Meyer's new series she's working on with me, as sponsored by SAP and ASUG. So that's how you came to us through Sherry Ann, and she'll be talking with me in just a minute. Second up on the panel is Carrie Williard. She is a workplace futurist. I love that term. I want to be a futurist when I grow up, Carrie. And the <laughs> HR line of business for the SAP cloud. And exciting news from Carrie. She is co-author of the upcoming book, Stretch. How to Future-Proof Yourself for Tomorrow's Workplace. That's a really loaded title, and I borrowed future-proof for the buzz today, future-proofing, and that's how I introduced the episode. So here's a quote from Carrie from Alvin Toffler. Those of you wondering, he was an American writer, and he is an American writer and futurist. He discusses the digital revolution, communication revolution, technological singularity, and... He started, he wrote two books that just groundbreaking with his wife, Heidi. Future Shock, I know most of you know him as Alvin Toffler. Future Shock, you might not have known that Heidi co-wrote, and The Third Wave. And these books apparently have helped millions around the world anticipate tomorrow's sweeping changes in everything we know and everything we do. So here's the quote. The illiterate of the 21st century will not be those who cannot read and write, but will be those who cannot learn 
unlearn and relearn. That's a wow. Carrie Williard, welcome back. How are you? Oh, fine. Thank you. So pleased to be on the show again. Wonderful. And this is a brand new series. And, and uh, we'll be talking to Sherry Ann, who started this whole thing a little while ago. This is actually, I think we're up to episode number two, and it's moving very quickly. So first of all, congratulations on the new book that's coming out someday soon. Carrie, I'm, I'm pleased for that. <laughs> Great title. And you can plug it a little bit later on. But tell me, how did you come to pick this quote from Alvin Toffler? So important. Well, um, there's a chapter in the book in which um, we talk about the need to continue to learn and not to fall into some learning traps. And one of those is to assume that once you've learned something, you're you're done. You don't have to keep on learning. You can go learn new stuff because actually we have to keep on unlearning. And I I, I bought the Toffler book way back when, and you know it's always informed me. It sits on my on my bookshelf here still. And so, you know, I mean, it's as simple as um, one example, uh, you know, I learned how to type prior to the year 2000, let's say, (laughs) and, you know, you don't put in, you don't put in double spaces now between sentences. That's right. Well, what a difficult thing to unlearn. And in fact, people say that they can tell bloggers that are over 40 by the ones who put in the double spaces between sentences. So something oh, that's I'm not blogging anymore. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't know that because, Carrie, I get bios from people for these shows all the time, and I notice some people love. But, Carrie, I have to tell you, I get people with triple spaces between the sentences. Oh, and I want to know, oh, oh, dear, I don't know. Does that mean they're over 70 or eight? I don't even want to go there. So go ahead. <laughs> Continue. Sherry Ann, your secret's safe with us. Go ahead. No, she's a young one. Go ahead, Carrie Ann. Talk, Carrie, talk to me. Oh well, and you know, or 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 things when you know, did dinosaurs have scales or feathers? You know, first we said they had scales, then we said they have feathers. Now I think we're back to scales again in just the last six months. So there's a whole set of things in order to stay current and and be ready for the future. You have to keep on looking at you know, you have to be able to learn and unlearn and relearn. And so I thought the Toffler quote was so prescient in terms of knowing what our world is going to be like. I mean, there's so much data out there and so much to keep up with uh, that, that, you know, if we're not preparing our resources, our, our, our most important resources for the future, we mm-hmm. could find ourselves with a whole bunch of people that are, that are triple spacing between sentences. <laughs> there you go. And I want to add a word, if I can take a little poetic license here. Uh, the illiterate <laughs> will be those who cannot learn, unlearn, and relearn, and think. And I think this is what we're trying to teach our children today, is teach them to think. Don't just use the calculator or something on your phone, the spell check. Think about what you're writing, what you're saying, what you're learning. How can you apply it? You know, use this word in a sentence. Use this formula in real life. Applying it and thinking. Would you agree with that, Carrie? Oh, I I not only agree with that, but I also think that we can um, become so dependent on technology that we forget how to uh, do things manually, the, to, to, to do the think things. So when you look at uh, the miracle on the Hudson and Captain Sullenberger landing that plane, I mean, he was out ma- doing a lot more manual practice, mm-hmm. flying a glider, for example. How much did that contribute to having to be able to take a plane in without engines on, yeah. onto the Hudson? And so 
we can become over-reliant on our, our technology and under-reliant on our brains to help us um, think about how to do things. All good points. And all of you out there in HR land listening to the show, we're talking to you. Time to learn, unlearn, relearn, think, and use your brain. And we'll be talking about that more. And now it's time to bring on, I'll call you the doyen, the uh, the person who brought me this series. We've been cooking this up for a couple months, and I'm delighted. Sherry Ann Meyer, she is the expert for human resources, business processes, and technology at ASUG. Those of you who are hiding under a rock, that's the America's SAP Users Group. And Sherry Ann brought me a quote from Walt Disney. Now, she usually quotes the movie The Wizard of Oz. She sometimes quotes the movie A Field of Their Own, and now she's quoting Walt Disney, who kind of uh, very distinctly relates to movies and animation. Yes, so here's the quote. The times and conditions change so rapidly that we must keep our aim constantly focused on the future by Walt Disney. Sherry Ann Meyer, welcome to your show. How are you, Sherry Ann? (laughs) I'm great, Bobby. Thanks. So talk so to me. Walt quote, Disney, I know you're fascinated with him. Tell me how this particular quote came to us today. You, you know, what's funny. Now, you're going to laugh at this because what's behind that quote is my mind was going, I'm not in Kansas anymore. I'm not in Kansas anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Touche. <laughs> I think most days some of us wake up and think, yeah, I'm not in Kansas anymore. What just happened to me? Um, but I think this quote to be is imperative. These simple things are imperative for us to keep at the top of our mind. I love everything that Tom and Carrie said, and obviously that's why they're on this show with me. Um, I'm a big proponent of creativity as being a component of the way you live your life and the way you um, continually educate yourself. Um, and I think I, I love those phrase, learn, unlearn, relearn, and think. And the biggest thing that I think, um, I think, that I see among people is that they don't stop to think. They come to work, they bring themselves to work from their college background or from whatever they think their job is, and they just execute it. And the human resources department is as guilty of that as anybody else. And this is the department that we expect to be able to coach the rest of our organization towards growth. So I'm really passionate about this idea about Yes, there are a lot of things you have to execute in HR. Yes, you have to keep your company out of the hands of the lawyers. Yes, you have to pay people. Let's get that done. But there's a more important reason why you chose an HR career. And for the same reason, another person chose an engineering career, because that's what makes you you. Something inside of you is empathetic and relates to people better than it does to math, and that's your thing. So let's not forget who we are at our core and use that capability to really develop our organization. Good point, Sherry. And let me ask you a quick question before we circle back to Tom for what's in your cup today. We all know that's coming. Uh, question is, we all know we've been told over and over again there are now five generations, five demographic cohorts, if you will, working side by side, shoulder to shoulder, cube to cube, desk to desk, laptop to laptop in the workforce today. How has this generational diversity, this huge spread of age groups in the workforce today, Sherry Ann, how has this impacted HR as a profession? Are we seeing millennials coming up through the ranks? Are we seeing boomers still holding on to their desk and saying, damn it, I'm not going to retire? I'm talking about myself, but I'm not in HR. Uh, are, what are we seeing in terms of this ability to learn, unlearn, relearn, think, use your brain, reconsider workers from assets to investments? Is HR in the right mindset and the right generational set to cope and grasp this, Sherry Ann? 
Well, I don't think you can stereotype or put any or a group into a bucket and say that's who they are. I think certainly there's still a lot of boomers in the workplace, and some of them are more open to change than others. And my experience tells me that that's probably just as true of millennials as it is of the older generation. Um, and, you know, I do get tired of hearing about the five generations. What's important about that to remember, I think, is that everyone needs to have a voice. And I'm all about listening as opposed to talking. That's one of the key messages I like to bring home to people because as you have millennials in the workplace and they're working along boomers who are very vocal and maybe we never shut up, um, it, it's imperative for us to leave some white space for them to talk. I think that's one of the biggest things, that they can have their voice heard and that the boomers, <laughs> to use two parallel examples or diametrically opposed examples, rather, um, that the boomers are pausing enough to, to listen to that um, because I don't think smart people are incapable of learning. I just think we get too caught up sometimes in our own messaging and our own lives to really hear what's going on around us. Very well put. I think we've got a couple of quotable moments in there, actually, from all three panelists. Thank you, Sherry Ann. And let's dial it back over to Tom Kalopoulos. Tom, where are you calling from? Did you say Boston? Uh, where are you calling from? And what are you drinking right now, or what are you thinking about drinking after the show? Tell me a story. <laughs> the what I'm thinking about drinking might be much more interesting than what I'm drinking. In fact, I know. Oh, it tell me. I oh, share. Yes. I am in Boston uh, with uh, a lovely, beautiful uh, summer's day. It's still mm -hmm. uh, warm, and uh, summer has not left us, and, and hopefully winter will not arrive for quite some time. And I am drinking, actually, the purest form of beverage that you can drink. It is uh, Poland Springs natural spring water. That's it for me today. Not, not very exciting, but, you know, I think Abraham Lincoln would be very surprised at the fact that we can get a dollar a bottle for this stuff uh, nowadays. <laughs> I think that's one of the great innovations of mankind right there. <laughs> I appreciate that. that. that Tom, are you, are you drinking it cold or room temperature in a big glass out of the bottle? Come on, we want details here, Tom. So, um, you know, I'm, 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 glad, I'm glad you asked that because I, I never drink it cold. I always drink it at room temperature, and people always look at me oh. a bit strange when I'm in an airport and I ask for a bottle of water in the, you know, the little stores there, and, and, they, and they, they don't have them at room temperature. I ask them specifically, do you have a, you know, a case that's hanging around somewhere? Because, so mm -hmm. yes, I do drink it at room temperature. I don't drink it uh, cold, even on a hot summer's day. You look like that kind of a guy to me. I don't know why. I'm only teasing. I, I know I people. I my beer and my water warm, yes. <laughs> well, now, see, if I ask enough questions, we get to know the real time. I know uh, people no, who, who right. some people are proponents of only having room temperature beverages, if any at all, with a meal, especially with dinner. They feel that cold beverages are disruptive to the digestive tract or something. I don't know. They write books about that, but we're not going to talk about that today. Carrie Williard, where are you? What are you drinking or what do you wish you were drinking? <laughs> so I am in beautiful Fort Collins, Colorado, which is about an hour north of Denver. It's halfway between Denver and um, Cheyenne, Wyoming. And so we get great water out of the mountains, some of the best in the, mm. in the world, I'm sure. But um, I am drinking sparkling water, and I have this little piece of technology under one of my sinks that actually adds the carbonation to the water. So I have home-brewed, if that sounds good to you, home-brewed mm. local <laughs> water that is sparkling, and I keep it nice and chilled and cold. And later on today... I can add a little bit of um, uh, concentrate and, uh, and, and 
gin to make a, a gin and tonic using that same water. So oh, that that's sounds my plan for the day. Fun. That sounds very, very nice. I think we'll all come out and join you. Sherry Ann Meyer, you said you're, you told me before the show you're in the SAP offices in Manhattan. Welcome to my area. I'm on Long Island. So if I lean out the window, mm-hmm. but not too far, I can wave and you'll sort of see me. So, Sherry Ann, what are you drinking? Okay, I'm in- waving. I'm waving. <laughs> <laughs> what are you, what are you <laughs> waving? I see you. I see you. What are you drinking? You know, this is so boring. I'm drinking the same darn thing that Tom is right now. However, I am in New York City, and on the way out, I plan to stop at a Starbucks and get myself a flat white. That's one of my favorites from them. You want to explain that, what a flat white is? We've heard it a few times, but not enough to remember it. So what's a flat white? Yeah, a flat white is like a latte, not really. It's stronger. Uh, It's an espresso drink, and they add an extra shot to it. And then there's steamed milk in it, of course. But it's the process, it's the technique they use for steaming and then pouring the milk in it that um, makes it very velvety. Um, So it's a very strong coffee, but very velvety, and in that way it's kind of mild. So it's a nice treat. Sounds lovely. And by the way, do you know know where it originated first, Cherianne? No, I don't. Well, I'm going to tell you, and you know I will. It originated in Australia. Then it moved to New Zealand. And did you know that there is, let's see, 50% more caffeine in regular brewed coffee than there is in espresso? No way. Yes, 80 milligrams of caffeine in espresso and 120 in coffee. I'm never going to play Trivial Pursuit with you. What can I tell you? I looked this stuff up while we're on the radio. No, I I did research it. It came to my attention that espresso, I believe, has uh, 80 milligrams. I think I've got the right measure of grams of caffeine, and a regular brewed coffee has 120. So there's 50% more in regular coffee than espresso. So if you're looking for a jolt, it ain't in the espresso, but the flat white looks really good, and I'm looking at a picture of it now. So guess what? I have exhausted my panelists and they're all going to go out and drink something wonderful now. Probably (laughs) water, 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 water everywhere. And that's what they're drinking. Having a very lively conversation here. This is the second episode of our new S series, Game Changing HR Leaders Radio. Our topic today is from workers as assets to workers as investments. A very important heads up to HR. We've got a wonderful panel. They're great talkers, great thinkers, and great drinkers apparently of water. Tom Kalopoulos at the Delphi Group. <laughs> Carrie Williard, author of the new Stretch Out of Future Proof Yourself for Tomorrow's Workplace. And Sherry Ann Meyer now with ASUG. I'm Bonnie D. Graham and I plan to be after the break. So don't even think of touching that mouse, that app, that dial. We'll be right back. Justin out. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. The world of work is changing faster than ever, and the future will be defined by how quickly human resources can adapt and lead through accelerated, ongoing change. A corporate culture that embraces differences and innovation is among the top winning strategies for business success. How can human resources shape such a culture in their organizations? One that is moving forward in step with business development, acquisitions, mergers, digitally demanding employees and customers, and changing workforce dynamics. Join our experts as they share game-changing ideas and strategies for leading business success through the next millennium. 
Game Changing HR Leaders is presented by SAP and America's SAP Users Group's Recharge HR. Visit www.sap.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Game Changing HR Leaders, presented by SAP, America's SAP Users Group's Recharge HR. Email your comments and questions to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. And you're invited to tweet during and after the live show at Twitter, hashtag SAPRADIO. Now, let's get back to Game Changing HR Leaders. Time for the second part of the show. As our regular Game Changers radio listeners know, we're going to tackle a roundtable 30 minutes nonstop, and I know my three panelists are ready. We're talking with Tom Kalopoulos at the Delphi Group, Carrie Williard at SAP Cloud, our workplace futurist, and Sherry Ann Meyer at SAP Users Group. That's ASUG. Okay, so Tom Kalopoulos and I have cooked up the opening for the roundtable during the break. And Tom, I'm looking at your notes, and I found something interesting. We don't want to tick off Sherry Ann because she doesn't want to talk about all these five generations, but damn, they're here and they're staying. So, Tom, you and I are going to put ourselves at risk, and I'm going to open with the following statement, and you can run with it. You say, millennials were actually the beta test for Gen Z. Gen Z was born into technology. There was no adoption, no ramp up. It is simply in their DNA. Talk to me, Tom. Take it from there. So there's this wonderful YouTube video that uh, most people have probably seen of, of a baby just being born, and, and as he or she comes out of the womb, they have an iPad in hand, and they begin taking over technologically. That's Gen Z. Gen Z doesn't think of this stuff as technology, right? For Gen Z, it's just the way that the world operates. But I'll tell you, surprisingly, I'm actually with Sherry Ann. I don't want to talk about millennials or Gen Z or boomers. I think we're, we're entering a post-generational world because we're all using the same technologies to communicate and collaborate, and pretty soon everyone on the face of the planet will be connected through some kind of mobile device, and we'll have no excuse any longer for thinking generationally. When I talked about Rob Webb at Hyatt, you know, Rob, who runs their HR, said to me, uh, and these were his, his words, we're moving beyond concerns about millennials and boomers, and I applaud him for that. And he went on to say, that's not the way I want to live my life. I don't want to live it in a generational bucket, and that's not what we want at Hyatt. And he illustrated to me the, the way that they use empathetic thinking and behavior to relate with their employees, not generationally, uh, but based on what their interests are. And you know what's amazing? Because of technology, we are able to, not just in HR, but across the board, understand each other behaviorally much more than we ever have. So no excuse for the generational labels. I don't, I don't buy those. And one of the things that really irritates me, Bonnie, is when you're in a group of, of, uh, of boomers and someone starts bashing a millennial, and you look around, and sure enough, within arm's reach or you know, within voice reach is a millennial. And no one is asking them what they feel or what they think. They're just bashing them. We've got to get beyond that. That, that just drives wedges in an organization. You can't run a company with, with five wedges between generations. It just doesn't work that way. It's untenable. So who's going to get rid of those wedges? Is it HR's responsibility? Is it the responsibility of the millennials to say, stop labeling me? I don't have an M on my sweatshirt. Whose job is it, Tom? <laughs> I think part of it is HR. You know, rise to the occasion. Now, I think that there's a, a mandate here to begin putting in place programs like reverse mentoring, where 
new mm. hires can teach uh, uh, older folks what it is about Instagram that makes it so interesting, how to use Facebook, what is Twitter etiquette, what does it mean to tweet? Um, reverse mentoring is this wonderful idea, but so few companies are using it. Less than 14% that, that we surveyed are actually doing reverse mentoring. So HR has to step up the plate and say, you know what, there are some things that we can do that do require some bit of jump sign. They're not going to happen organically. And reverse mentoring is a great example of that, by the way. And I, I would challenge listeners right now how many of them are actually using reverse mentoring in their organization to try to bridge these divides. Um, easy tool, but, uh, but, but so infrequently used. Very true. Carrie Williard, talk to us. What do you think about anything Tom brought up? Gen Z, Gen Y, oh, reverse mentoring, I'm what's on your mind? I'm going to really apologize to Sherry here because ah. I believe, and you know, when I do Google <laughs> searches on it, it shows the same thing that I'm the person who introduced the phrase five generations in the workplace. You are? Back in 2009. So you people are? were talking about four generations. <laughs> and, um, and so I introduced this phrase five generations in the workplace. So Cher's probably over there just cursing me at the moment. <laughs> and she's cursing me for remembering it. You know I'm not. Carrie, she's cursing me for remembering it because I brought it up on at least 50 of our Game Changers radio shows. I didn't know you were the attribution. I apologize to you. Go ahead, Carrie. Um, but, you know, I think one of the things that's really interesting is, is, um, is that in, in the research that we've done lately, I am completely on board with this idea that there's really not as much difference as we think. Because uh, it's not, uh, maybe, you know, as, as Tom brought up, it's, it's less that, um, that there's this one generation that's really using technology and others not. Because over the last five or six years, we've all become very familiar with and comfortable with technology. And there are those that get to do it right out of the womb. Or like uh, I sat on a flight not, not too long ago and watched a, a, a six-month-old baby, couldn't, barely able to sit up straight. On her, on her mother's lap, just flipping through pictures and just really enjoying the, the iPhone to keep her entertained on the, on the plane. So I, I, I think the, the differences are fewer than, than, than we assume. And some surprising things that baby boomers want that people assume they don't want. And so I just think it, does it, it helps to understand that we have diversity in the workplace, but not to uh, assume stereotypes in the workplace. Thank you. And by the way, I have a quick note before Sherry Ann jumps in. Uh, Tom, addressing this to you. And did you know that in 1999, Jack Welch introduced reverse mentoring at GE? Do you remember that? Yeah, he was. He was the per- absolutely. He was the yeah. person who, who created this. And I, you know, kudos to him because back then, the reason he did it was to get his senior execs to to, to get the internet because they were That's all kind it? of looking at it as a an aberration, this temporary thing. You know, it'll come and go. We don't have to worry about it. And he said, No, no. You know, you better pay attention to this. And guess what? I am going to mandate that you have to have a reverse mentor. And boy, did they like that. They. Um, they didn't. They didn't take that very kindly. But you know what? Those folks got the internet very quickly, and it put GE in an enviable position as a result. Absolutely, and he applied this to 600 top managers. Said, "Go learn about the internet from younger workers," and it was organization wide. That's how big the initiative was. I'm glad you remembered that. I thought it'd be an interesting trivia. Who said they don't want to know more trivia? It's here. We can't stop it. Sherry Ann Meyer, talk to us. What do you think? So I think Jack Welch is the Walt Disney of the business world, okay? Wow. I think he's done a lot of surprising things. And um, 
was actually very creative in his approach to things. He's respected as a business leader, but he was creative. And you know me, I'm going to talk about creativity. And two things jump out at me, because I agree with both Carrie and with Tom. Um, the whole idea of talking about there's five generations, or there's millennials, and there's boomers, and now there's really old folk out there in the workforce, um, is important. Okay, so we point out the differences. That's one thing we do with it. But what's more important is that we use those differences. And that's kind of, I think, what's been lost in all the messaging. What it's boiled down to is that, oh, there's five generations. You have to market different. You have to manage your talent different. They want to be paid differently. No, they're just human beings. But guess what? They all have differences they bring to the table because of the way they grew up. Because in the future, we're going to have that little baby who is sitting in the airplane with these iPad or the iPhone scrolling back and forth in our workplace, and that baby will have learned differently than any of us learned, will have learned differently than any of the millennials learned, and we'll have had different experiences just because that's the way life is. So what's important as generations move through the workplace is that we always maintain open lines of communication and that we use what those people can bring to our workplace. Very interesting. Tom, thoughts on what your co-panelists have shared? Yeah, you know, so this generational issue is such a hotbed of, of discussion, isn't it? And I think the, the reason we have to keep focusing on why it's, it's such a fascinating topic for everyone across the board, and that's why I write about it and I talk about it, there's no one who's unaffected, because we all, fall to, we all have some generational identity. And I think the key is, look, there are things that do make us unique based on our experiences. That will always be the case. Cohorts will always have some shared experience. But more and more, if I put myself in the future, more and more of that will be easily shared across those cohorts. So if I want to experience what it feels like to, uh, to land on the moon, I can put on an Oculus Rift and I can see Neil Armstrong stepping on the moon. I, I can be next to him. I mean, I can, I can experience, uh, you know, the, 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 the dot-com crash of 2001 as much as I can the Vietnam era. I can put myself in that same cohort's shoes. And as a result of that, the lines blur. So this idea of, of identifying ourselves by our generation, I, I think, is, is a lazy way to, um, uh, to treat other people, and, and frankly, it's a lazy way to, uh, to define ourselves. We're, we're all much more than that. And if HR takes a role in getting that message across, it creates some unity, at least some tolerance, if not unity, across, across the enterprise. Someone's got to do that. Welch did it at GE. I mean, he, he got it. When you have a strong leader, you can do that. But, you know, not every organization has that kind of leader. And I think HR, to some degree, has to step in and fill that void and, and create the, the, the role model uh, by which these generations will, will operate and, and, and collaborate. Someone's got to do it. Thank you, Tom. Very profound comment you just made. Uh, don't be lazy in terms of grouping people into segments, labels, putting letters on their sweatshirts, as I like to say. I'm going to move this into a direction uh, on what the what my topic was when I started, moving from workers as assets to workers as investments. And the operative word there is investments. And I'm looking at some notes from Carrie Williard. Uh, Carrie, let me read a quote, your study from Oxford Economics you're citing in your notes, and then you can run with it. You say, in our study with Oxford Economics, fewer than 50% of employees believe they have the skills now that they will need for tomorrow. Almost two-thirds say they don't believe their employers are able to train them for tomorrow's skills. Now, Carrie, that's scary to me. That says a lot about the organizations they work for. Why don't you expand this for us, please? Well, when you think about it, there's we, we each have so much to just keep up with today. There's so much new knowledge coming into the world. There are so many changes in processes, new technologies. 
that it's really just difficult to keep up with that. When you look at what employers are doing to train, they are focused more on keeping up with policy changes and technology changes and what's the changes in the law, and so you get compliance training and those kinds of things. But not enough, almost nothing, about how can we get people ready for tomorrow. And when you think about it, just going to a class is not really going to give you the skills you need. You need to go to a class and you need to get some practice with others and do all kinds of things to really begin to prepare for new skills that are coming down the path. So I think as we have, you know, not only this combination of so many changes happening, but as people have called it, a silver tsunami, the baby boomers Mm -hmm. exiting the workplace. In the United States now, it's gotten up to... This year, it switched to 11,000 people a day turned 65, and most people are retired by 65. So having the people behind them who are ready to do that, just to even stay up to date with the, with the knowledge walking out the door is a problem. So it's no wonder that in, uh, employers are less concerned about three years down the road because they're doing catch-up for today. But I think that, that, that three years down the road is going to bite us in the wrong place pretty soon if we're not careful. Very interesting. Uh, uh, Sherry-Ann, thoughts? Well, it seems to me that we need to have a core set of people in business and in HR in particular that focuses on the day-to-day and keeping up with, you know, the next year. I mean, we're hiring for people that we probably needed. In most organizations, they claim to have needed those people, you know, six months ago, and it took six months to get the requisition in place. So I I think Mm -hmm. it's imperative that you have a core set of people that are focused on that but that you also have another set in your organization that is focused on the future, and that has to do with training and growing your employees. And one of the experiences that I've had is that I have learned a lot more through experiences of interacting with other people, like Carrie and Tom and you, Bonnie, um, mm-hmm. than anything else. You know, getting up out of your chair, getting up out of your desk, being able to go to conferences. You know, in the old days, I think that we used to view conferences as boondoggles. Oh, you go to a conference. Yeah, that's right. You're out golfing. You're out drinking. You're out partying. I work harder at any conference I've ever gone to than I do when I'm at my desk because I'm constantly learning something, even if it's at just a networking event and talking to someone. So I think um, things like, you know, having LinkedIn where people share um, information, share stories, and all the, the access to information that is available in magazines and print and online um, gets you thinking, but being active and being able to interact with other people, even if it's just in your own organization, getting up from your desk or going to be part of a member organization like ASUG and other organizations um, is what really expands your horizons and lets you know what other people are doing, what's going on out there in the marketplace for real, and what should I be doing, thinking, learning, trying. Sherry-Ann, we're living in a very virtual, distributed workforce world. I don't think I've set foot in an office in, don't tell anybody, a year and a half. <laughs> it's all virtual. How do we see what other people it's are doing? Time, if we don't? Bonnie, it's time. No, 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 no. We have to set up more conference calls. And we, you know what we need? We need video chatting. I think we need to, to mandate or institute uh, better ability to have video chats with people where we can visit them in their environment and they can see us in ours and we can participate from wherever we are. I, I think that's something that's missing in corporate life is the embracing of the visual part that's, that's, of Skype. 
That's very think? interesting. That's definitely missing, and there are tools out there that could do it, and most corporations have adopted them, and most employees refuse to try to use them, and I'm not sure why that is. Uh, maybe the tools aren't perfect yet. It just takes too much time to get into them, and so it's a waste. Um, but, think- Bonnie, you certainly don't live under a rock, right? I mean, even though you don't physically get up out of your desk every day, you're constantly no. connecting with other people virtually. Con- and so am I. I also work from yeah. my home most of the time. But yep. um, it's that idea, there's a bigger world out there. It's not all about me. Yes, that's very, very true. And your point is well taken. Yes, I talk to people all over the world on SAP Radio. However, I just want to mention, I used to work for um, a big uh, cell phone manufacturer is what they were named for, what they're known for. However, I was part of the software marketing division, and we had what was called a Halo studio. I was so excited about it that I offered to my whole team to book all the meetings once a month for a year in advance. And Halo was where we sat at a desk with controls and three video screens in a a half a circle were in front of us and we could bring four different offices from anywhere around the world into the same conference and see each other. The delay was minimal, maybe a second to a half a second, and we could actually sit there. But you know, to your point, Sherry Ann, a lot of people said, oh, I don't look good. I don't want anybody to see me. Oh, it's early in the morning. Oh, do I have to put on my makeup? You know, all of that, that ego stuff got in. And that, that may be why a lot of people don't want to be seen on video chats, but I rest my case. Tom, what do you think? I know you're not worried about uh, fluffing up your hair or putting on your lipstick before a meeting, but what, what do you think why people don't want to embrace this video chatting? Any thoughts on that? I, I don't wear enough lipstick and I don't have enough hair, so yeah, I'm good on both of accounts. Um, you look good to me. <laughs> yeah, I've got a, I've got a, a, a face for radio. Um, look, I, I think that there's, I'll tell you one thing, first of all, just to, to, to put a, a capstone on this, on this conversation, I, you know, I, find, I do find an age line of demarcation here. If I get on Skype with anyone around the age of 30 or so, they've got no reservation about going right to video from the outset. You know, bang, they're right there in your face. Uh-huh. If I hit someone 50 or older, inevitably they never want to go to video, and so I don't stop yep. the call with, with video. So there is an expectation set around, you know, mm-hmm. the, the video component of this. But I want to take us back to something you, you were saying earlier. I, when we were talking about the role of the organization and, and being a learning organization, I think that was a term that was coined by Peter Senge in, in the fifth discipline, and, and we've sort of made it part of our vocabulary. We all want to be learning organizations. So let me flip that around. Let's say instead of being a learning organization, I actually said to you, be a teaching organization. Wow, that suddenly puts the onus and the responsibility on you to actually do something. Because learning is what you can, just, you can absorb things, you can go to events, you can you know, plug into different um, organizations and you can absorb this information. But when I say be a teaching organization, that means put programs in place to actually keep your people up to speed on what's current, what's new, what's important, and make them engaging and interesting enough that people want to attend those. Um, look, I can go anywhere on the Internet from, from Udemy to Khan Academy mm-hmm. to God knows where to, to learn about things, and I do, because that's, that's part of what drives and motivates me. But I think as an HR professional, you have to look at your organization and say, what are we doing? to teach, to actually give people opportunity to expand their horizons when they have so much to do in their day-to-day. And maybe don't have the latitude, the flexibility, or feel they have the license to go out and learn. A lot of companies block video, so you can't mm-hmm. go online and, and watch video and learn. Short-sighted. Um, you know, right. So it, I, I, my challenge to HR would be, would be how are you uh, actively becoming a teaching organization and doing what you need to do to make sure your people have the most current skills and are engaged, want to be part of that, of that learning, not just absorbing it organically and, and coincidentally. 
Tom, you brought me into a great segue for talking points from Sherry Ann. But first, I have to tell our listeners, Tom is talking about Peter Senge. It's S-E-N-G-E. The book was first originally published in 1990. I know that's a long time ago, but there was a second edition from 2006. And the title is The Fifth F-I-F-T-H Discipline, The Art and Practice of the Learning Organization. And he is a senior lecturer at MIT. So anybody looking for it, just Google The Fifth Discipline and write there in the Wikipedia article, you will see what the five disciplines are. Very, very good here. Thank you so much for that reference, Tom. Sherry Ann, let me move to this question of education. You brought it up in a completely different way here in your notes, and let's bring this up into the conversation. You say, to me, there is also the question of education. Are our educational institutions turning out the right assets for our growth? It's not a set of skills, but rather the ability to continually learn, and you believe creativity and ingenuity are a best resources. So let's bring this back to one of our opening, our Toffler quote about learning, relearning, unlearning, and the ability to use your brain. What do you see, Sherry Ann? Are the educational institutions on track to give us, our, to give us people who come out with the right ability to think in the first place? This could be a whole other show. I know. Um, book I, it. I have, book it. It's um... your, your editorial <laughs> calendar. You, we're, we're there. Go ahead. Um, I, I have um, a real hard time with the schools in the United States. Um, they're all focused around um, standardized tests and preparing students to pass those standardized tests and measured and metrics. And so often they overlook the creative students in the school and the people, students are perhaps a little bit different. And those differences are important. So we're starting very, very young with our students, with our children, to tell them that it's not good to be different. You have to pass a standardized test. You have to look a certain way. You have to act a certain way. Um, and that's, that's how you fit in. And that's going to continue to propagate itself into society and squash creativity. So I have a real concern about that. Um, and I also have a concern about the educational institutions being able to really allow people, I don't know, I read a lot when I was young. I mean, there wasn't as much television and everything. And you know, my kids came up to a great school system that even they did not have to read all their textbooks. They were given study packets. And the study packets were given, again, so they could get through those standardized tests. Um, when you're given everything like that, you're not, you don't, you lose your ability to creatively learn um, or to embed it as part of your life, like breathing. It becomes something you just do to get the grade. And so I do really have a concern about our educational institutions and what they're preparing students for from a very young age. Interesting. Tom, comments on that? Carrie, comments? I Well, you know, for, uh, I can, it's short and sweet. I, I couldn't agree more. The whole notion of standardized testing is so antithetical to the kinds of skills and, and the sort of latitude that, that we need to have to solve some of these very complex problems that, that, that face us. I, look, I, you know, this to tie it back to what I was saying earlier, I think part of this is, is the element of lifelong learning that we've all sort of come to accept, that we can't stop learning. But the reality is that when you're on the job, you're not necessarily rewarded for learning, especially when it's not directly um, associated with what you're doing in that moment with that billable client, whatever the case might be. So HR has to architect that into the uh, the organization. And that takes effort. That requires sponsorship from, from leadership, but it's something HR has to fight for uh, because w- without that that element of lifelong learning, people will find themselves not just obsolesce, but frankly, I think very, very dissatisfied uh, because they'll see their peers pass them by uh, and while they're doing their job, most of the grindstone, 
just because someone else does have that latitude to be able to do a little bit of learning. So it's got to be architected into the work environment. Someone has to, has, to, has to carry that mantle. Thank you. And I want to bring in a note here from Carrie Williard. Carrie, I'd like you to talk about this. You say employment is moving toward the supplier side advantage, not just buyer side. You say offering a development path and investment in your employees, which is our topic today, may be the only way to attract and retain the best talent. And isn't that what the whole conversation is about, Carrie? Yes, uh, you know, it's, it's one of the things that was interesting in terms of what are people looking for in the job. Um, well, first off, we found that what they're worried about most is becoming obsolete. And I think that people are, that are entering the workforce are particularly tuned to that because they can see how much change there is. So in, in our survey, we found that uh, for, for millennials in particular in the United States, the ability to develop matters more than the salary. Um, for the rest of the world, salary is number one and then development number two, but it's still very high. In fact, we even found that over a third of baby boomers, almost triple other generations, said they'd considered leaving because they weren't getting enough development. So as, as, as we start to face that, that there are, are more jobs than there are qualified people, People are going to be able to exercise what do I want from a job as part of their choice about where they work, and that's going to include training. And if HR doesn't have that on their agenda, they're not going to be able to get the best talent that is available in the marketplace. They're going to have to take the, the also-rans in some case, or they're going to have to outsource it. In whatever case, they're going to end up with more expensive solutions than if so they plan ahead and begin to think about it now. Carrie, let me ask you a quick question here. Your book, Stretch, Future-Proofing Your Role in the Workplace, Your Place in the Future Workplace, question, when somebody goes into a job interview in order to future-proof their career, should they be asking the question, what kind of training will you make available to me as I advance in this company? Is that now? They already are asking that question. Is the number one question asked by millennials going into jobs now? Really? Well, we need to get that. According to our research of recruiters. We need to get that so, news out to the other generation. That question too. So yeah, it's not just the millennials. <laughs> Good. No, it's Good just to number know. one with millennials. It's 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 the the other generations have got other priority questions. They ask more about salary and uh, promotability. Sure. So we were taught as number one, but they've got development yeah. as number two. So. That's right. We were taught that. That's right. So we need some some new skills in being the interviewee. Okay. Tom Kalopoulos, it's time for predictions. We've got six minutes left. I'll divide it evenly. I'm going to give you each 60 seconds for your predictions, and then if we have anything left over, we'll just chat for a minute. So, Tom, you know I love the year 2020 in the crystal ball segment of the show. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. What do you see looking in the future, Tom, as far as HR's mindset of looking at workers as investments, as the company embracing the workforce as investments and not just expendable assets what's going to change in the future tom 60 seconds predictions go so i think part of what is going to change i'll leverage off of what carrie was just saying is is the value proposition for hr will become much more profound and, and pronounced that hr will become part of why i join the organization that's a very different way to look at an organization than, than in the past mm-hmm. i don't 
think that I or most folks that I know that I grew up with and, and got jobs during a career said, hey, I'm going to join that company because of the HR department. So HR changes. It's not just the organization that hires you and, and protects you uh, and your interests. It's the organization that grows you, that, that creates value for you and for your career. And ultimately, here's the most antithetical thing I can say. Your, your asset is not the people. Your asset is the community that you create because the people will come and go. Uh, loyalty and on-the-job time is, is decreasing. But what doesn't change is my connection to community. If you can connect with me at that level and I remain part of your community, then you've got the most incredible asset. Because no matter where I am, in your office or not, I'm still an asset to you. That's what I see happening. Beautifully put. Thank you very much. Carrie Willard, talk to me. Prediction, 60 seconds. Go. Well, one of the things that we looked at was what are the capabilities that people are going to need in the future um, to include in our new book so people can start getting ready themselves. Since their employers aren't really helping them get ready, it really becomes on us to go look at how to get ready. And one of the really interesting things we found is that there's a Powerball combination of a couple of skills. Um, the first one is, do you have deep functional expertise? So it's almost, that's almost like a threshold to get into a job. Do you know how to do accounting or do you know how to do HR? Do you know how to do marketing? But the Powerball skill to add to that, and for those of you who don't know, um, who might not be in the U.S. that are, are, are listening, Powerball is a lottery um, accelerator. So you win the lottery, but if you've gotten the Powerball, you get a, a multiple on the winnings. Well, the multiple on the winnings in terms of skills is emotional intelligence. And I think that's one of the things, when I talk to recruiters, that's one of the things they're really worried about for the future. Are we bringing in new workers who, who have the emotional intelligence they'll need to, to navigate um, or complex organizations in the future? So with my crystal ball, I think one of the things that HR organizations are going to have to do is not only help people be ready functionally with the skills they'll need for tomorrow, but also help them have the emotional intelligence they'll need to be able to navigate complex organizations, complex supplier relationships, and so on. That's my prediction. Thank you, and a very powerful one. Sherry Ann Meyer, what do you predict? Well, mine's a little bit simpler than all of that, but when I started in human resources many years ago, um, first of all, I, I was very attracted by the HR person who hired me, but that's probably because I'm an HR person, um, and that did impress me. But, you know, what was happening in HR in those days um, was basically um, administering benefits, um, recruiting people, um, mm -hmm. paying people, and running a pension plan with the big departments, right? And there was this little department off on the side that was called organization development. Nobody really quite knew what they did. They were the touchy-feely people. In my view, that is going to be the key driver of human resources in the future. And all this other stuff that we're talking about is going to be just simply operational because what's really needed, what we've all been talking about here, is a way to better develop people from the time they're very young, from the time they enter our workforce, from the time till the time they leave our workforce. A continual development path is needed in order to keep people engaged because why is it that some baby boomers are sitting at their desk bored and not totally engaged and not working as hard as they used to because we're not continuing to develop them? There's a bias against an older person thinking, well, they're going to leave soon or, you know, they really don't want to do this. No, force them, develop them, engage them. All the stuff we're talking about engagement is some pretty simple things like saying thank you and, hey, let me know I'm valued, develop me, show me that you can, that you count on me. 
such revolutionary ideas, Sherry and Meyer. How dare you? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sherry Ann, we have a, we have about 30 seconds left. We do care about you. We do. We have about 30 seconds left. I want to just give you, before I do my closing shout-outs quickly, what's coming up next on this series, Game Changing HR Leaders? Just whet our audience's appetite. What's coming up next week? Well, we're continuing the discussion um, around the same topic, but this is looking at from compliance to strategy, the road forward, and it's kind of what I was just talking about, really. Um We've been so worried about compliance in the Human Resources Department. There's things we have to do to carry out. But is that okay. human resources management? No, it's not. Um, so talking about the future world of human resources as being really part of the people that sit at the table and make the decisions for the company and help grow the workforce. Thank you very much, and we'll look forward to that panel next week. I'm Bonnie D. Graham with a big shout-out to our wonderful panel, great talkers, great thinkers, good energy. Please all come back. Sherry Ann, invite them back. Tom Kalopoulos at the <laughs> Delphi Group, wonderful to connect with you. Carrie Williard, what can I say? We're crossing our fingers and can't wait for your new book to come out. Stretch, it's going to happen soon. Sherry Ann Meyer, thank you for sponsoring this series. Delighted to work with you. Here's my call to action. You know what it is, but do it anyway. Fasten your seatbelt. What are you waiting for. I'm asking you, go out and be a game changer today, especially if you're in HR. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to Game Changing HR Leaders, presented by SAP and America's SAP Users Group. The best-run businesses run SAP and run simple. Tweet your questions and comments to hashtag SAPRADIO and Twitter handle R-E-C-H-A-R-G-E-H-R. Please join host Bonnie D. Graham Wednesdays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Business Channel. We wish you a positively game-changing week.